No more demons, for now. No more Virgil backhanded, for now. No more problems with trying to escape physical torture with the Barretters, for now. But we have come to a quieter place, an open place. We've come to our way out of the sixth pit of the hypocrites. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the beginning of Canto 24 of Inferno. I cannot believe it. Episode 141, and we're already to Canto 24. Only 9 million episodes to go. We're at the beginning of Canto 24 at lines 1 through 21. Virgil has been humiliated. He's been told that the devil is a liar. He should have known that all along. Why do you trust demons? Poor old Dante has watched Virgil be whipped way too often. The pilgrim has. The poet's been doing the whipping. Watch Virgil be whipped way too often. And now they've got to get out of this sixth pit. We move to Canto 24 and one of the most gorgeous passages in all of Inferno. In that part of the year when it's in its youth... So much so that the sun cools his curls in Aquarius, and the nights are already about half of the days, when Frost copies her image on the earth to look like that of her white sister, although the quill she uses stays sharp only briefly. That's when the villager, whose food stocks are running low, gets out of bed, takes a look around, and sees the countryside has all whitened. He smacks his thigh in disgust, goes back into his house, and complains for a bit, like a knave who doesn't know what he should do, until a short while later he goes outside again, and hope gets put back in his basket, because he's seen how quickly the world changes its aspect. He takes his crook and drives his little sheep out to find their pastures. Just so, my master made me practically a coward when I saw his forehead so troubled, and just so the wound got a band-aid very fast, because at the moment we got up to the ruined bridge, my guide turned back to me with that same sweet look that I first saw at the foot of the mountain. That's where we're going to stop it. After the opening gorgeous simile that starts off Canto 24 at the sweet look of Virgil. This passage is incredibly gorgeous. I want to talk about that in just a moment. I want to talk about how it's structured. I want to talk about some of the uh, uh, little knots that are in the passage itself, maybe a little bit of humor in the passage. We'll talk about that and a little meta-literary humor, perhaps, in the passage. And then I'm going to give you some ideas about how to interpret all of this long opening to Canto 24. And let me just say that I'm going to do this without telling you what the next evil pouch or the next of the Malabolgia is, which is going to be tough. <laughs> So much of this whole passage depends on what you know about what's ahead, but we're just going to take it as itself, a lyric poem sitting here, and we're going to look at it and see what we can glean from it. 
first off, as I said, let's just talk about the beauty of this passage. It is so gorgeous. I mean, Aquarius and the sun and the hoarfrost and likening the winter and the hoarfrost trying to copy out winter snows. You know, that time of year when the frost is here, but winter's kind of ebbing away. That moment, it's so beautifully pastoral. And then out comes this villanello, this villager, this peasant, this low common guy. He comes out. He looks around. He's disgusted. Oh, man, in the snow, ever going to go away? <laughs> Believe me, I know his feeling living in New England. Isn't the snow ever going to go away? He smacks his thigh, goes back inside, he complains, he whines, and then he goes right back outside, and the hoarfrost has melted, and the world is coming back alive again, and he takes his crook, and he drives his little sheep out, and that's how I felt when I saw Virgil all troubled because of the way been whipped so often by both the poet Dante and the hypocrites and even the demons. But yet, Virgil, you know what? It's like that melting hoarfrost. He just turns back to me and smiles and everything's okay. This is such a gorgeous bid. I wish we could read it in the Florentine because I have to tell you in the Florentine, it is even more beautiful. It is gorgeously structured. The language is beautifully thick throughout it. The parallels are astounding in the Florentine. There's no way I could do justice to this. I had to do all kinds of backward loops in order to get the Florentine translated into this. And I lost some of the beautiful concision and parallelism of the original. I wish we could be there, but we're not. We're in a translation, my translation, which you can find on my website, markscarbo.com, and we might as well just deal with the translation at hand. Look at how this thing goes. In that part of the year when it's in its youth, so much so that the sun cools his curls in Aquarius and the nights are already about half of the days. You should know that that third line, the nights are already about half of the days, is that translation problem. And I've given you my translation of it. There are dozens of other ways to translate that line. There's two big schools of thought about how to do it. Basically, the sun and the night are seen by Dante as kind of in some kind of equilibrium and parts of the year the sun is more of the day and some of the year the night is more of the day and they're kind of opposite each other around the earth and yes, around because as you will discover Dante knows that the earth is a sphere but that's ahead of us around the earth and it's a little bit tight how to translate it. I gave you my reading of it, but let's take it for this. The passage opens up in the heavens, in the constellations, Aquarius and the sun. And you should know that Dante believes that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun rotates around the earth. So we're up in the heavens with the sun. We're up in the heavens with Aquarius. We're in the constellations. And then the next three lines drop to the earth. When Frost, Hoarfrost copies her image on the earth to look like that of her white sister, that is snow. Although the quill she uses stays sharp only briefly. I mean, the problem is that as the seasons are changing, the quill, the writing that the hoarfrost does on the grass and on the trees. Isn't that 
God, isn't that gorgeous? That image of hoarfrost as the writing on the trees and in the grass. But the quill stays sharp only a little bit at this time of year. It's not like winter when that quill is always very sharp with that north wind. It's only a little bit. And then we drop even farther and we come to this villager, this villanello. And here's this guy, this peasant. You know, it's it's coming toward that moment when the food stocks are really low here where I live in New England that would be March and April which are just a food desert I mean you know we can get fresh oranges in in January and February we can get fresh fruit from of course other parts of the world and from Florida but we can get fresh fruits in and all and then we enter this phase of March and April when there's just not a lot fresh everything's coming in from Chile or yeah it's not right and you just think to yourself good god i want a peach or good god i want a plum i just want some fresh fruit rather than these tasteless strawberries and these plastic containers that's like this guy his food stocks are running low it's that bad part of the year when you're kind of running out of your winter stores and what are you going to do and he gets out of bed he takes a look around and he sees oh no that countryside's all whitened and he smacks his thigh and this is my addition in disgust. The text is just he smacks his thigh, but it is a classical move, a classical gesture of disgust. So I just added in disgust so you kind of get what is going on there. I mean, he's just disgusted. And he goes back inside his little house and he complains and all that. And then comes out again and it's all done. But it's all over and the world is greening up. I mean, think about what we did. We dropped from the sun in Aquarius down through the earth, down to this villager. It's got such good gorgeous structure to it it is beautifully set up it's like the camera is way way back out there at jupiter i don't know and it's panning slowly in toward the earth think about passing the sun in a geocentric universe passing the sun panning in panning down to the ground panning down to the hoarfrost and finally panning right inside this peasant's house so beautifully structured, such a nice bit of, well, also poetic quoting. Because it starts out in that part of the year when it's in its youth, so much so that the sun cools his curls in Aquarius. That's actually a fusion of two different texts. It's a fusion of Aeneid book nine line 636 in which apollo is called long-haired and here we have the sun with its his curls his long hair so we're kind of quoting apollo here and it's also got a reference to the georgics another virgil passage the georgics virgil's pastoral poems about shepherds and the changing of the seasons and um, that's the georgics uh the third of the georgics lines 303 to 304 all of that is fused in there and you should also know that at the start of Ovid's Metamorphoses, the seasons are used as examples of metamorphoses that go on on a cosmic scale. So Ovid is kind of being woven in here way in the background. Virgil is being more directly quoted here. It's all moving around these two writers, Virgil and Ovid as it moves through this beautiful poetic explanation. You should also see, and I think you probably do see, that the first six lines here 
part of the year of its use. Sun cools its curls in Aquarius. Frost copies her image on the Earth to look like our white sister. Although the quill she uses stays sharp. That's very high style stuff. That's very up poetry, especially in a medieval context. Very learned, smart, all this all this Virgilian reference, all this Ovidian reference in the background, and even the language itself is very high. And then you should know that at the seventh line, when the villager, the villanello, appears the peasant, we feel this drop, and the tone gets very low, and the tone gets very matter-of-fact, and that beautiful poetic overflow kind of drops out. And I, I tried to get it there by, say, by by saying, gets out of bed, takes a look around, sees the countryside is all white, and smacks his thigh into his house, goes back to his house, complains a lot, like a knave who doesn't know what he should do. It, it drops into very kind of straightforward discourse. So we come out of high poetry into lower poetry. It's, it's all being highly constructed around us, and that adds to its beauty. We haven't seen an opening similarly like this since back in Canto 21 with all that bit about the Venetians and their pitch. I would argue that this is even more elaborate, even more learned, the way especially it moves from high poetry to low poetry, quoting Virgil, quoting and background, quoting Ovid, to kind of uh, Dante's more low street style of discourse, gets out of bed, takes a look around, sees the country. I mean, this is even bigger than that Venetian simile. We're not going to see a simile that, that is this complicated an opening bit to a canto until way down at canto 30. We'll hit another one that is this complicated, except that's mostly very high style. It's the blending of styles here that is so astounding, all to get us to a peasant, a villanello. Let's talk about him. So here comes this poor guy out of his hovel. His food stocks are <laughs> running low. He gets up one morning, looks at it. He's like, oh, no, it's still snowing. Am I never going to be able to feed my sheep? He goes back inside his house and complains. There's a lot to be said about this low figure in this gorgeous discussion of the metamorphoses of the season, this incredible change of the season, this moment in which, you know, you're, you're jockeying back and forth between winter and spring. But here's something that I just want you to keep in the back of your mind and if you know what's ahead don't smile too much at me a peasant a villanello a villager a knave is somebody who doesn't have a lot of stuff which means you can't steal from him it's no good robbing his house. There's nothing there. His food stocks are even running low. Even if you're hungry and you want something to eat. I mean, this guy's got not much of anything. He's got his sheep, which he's got to get fed. But you can't steal a lot from a villanello, a villager. Just want you to hold that in your mind for what's ahead. If you know what's ahead, you know where I'm headed. But if you don't, just hold that in your head for what comes up in Canto 24. This is a poor guy. He doesn't have a lot on hand. Dante is that poor guy. Think about how this simile works. So we got the sun in Aquarius, we got the hoarfrost copying her image on the earth. It's all happening around as the guy gets out of bed, complains, goes back inside, comes back out. The hoarfrost is melted. He's like, oh my God, I can finally take my sheep to pasture. He drives his little sheep out to their pastures. I mean, think about all of that. And guess what? Guess who is that in the poem? Well, that's Dante. Just so... My master made me practically a coward. 
the passage says, when I saw his forehead so troubled. And just so, the wound got a Band-Aid very fast. Because at the moment we got up to the ruin bridge, my guide turned back to me with that same sweet look that I first saw at the foot of the mountain. That means that Villanello, that peasant, that villager, that's Dante, the pilgrim. That's the pilgrim who's walking along and, you know, he sees the hoarfrost on Virgil's brow and he's like, oh, no, the poor Virgil, he's been abused and he's been beaten up and he's angry and he's walking away mad because they're talking to him about the, you know, you should know that the devil lies. You, you should, anybody should know that. He's all irritated and then he turns back and he's got a sweet look on like when the hoarfrost has disappeared and uh, Dante is... Ah, you know, it's so great. Dante is the rustic in this passage. If that's the case, several other interesting things are going on. One is Dante may be pulling a little joke on you. This is the meta-literary humor that may be going on here. There is no way I would ever describe Dante as a villanello except to say that Dante in exile doesn't have anything you could steal. Dante has no goods. He's got nothing on him. He is living at the behest of various Italian warlords. So Dante is like a peasant or a villager, but we would never think of Dante as some kind of rustic who's smacking his thigh and complaining a bit, unless we're getting a little peek at the writing process. Unless... Part of the writing process of writing comedy is having moments in which you get stuck and realizing that there are, in fact, ways out of those moments. And the ways out of those moments lie with who? Virgil and his sweet look. And you know what? Don't let Dante fool you because the passage comes out that Virgil turns around when they get to the ruined bridge. Remember, all the bridges are down over the sixth Malabolgia, and they've got to get out somehow by climbing out because the demons have lied, saying at least some of the bridges are still up, but in fact, none of them is up. So they get here to the next place where there's a kind of ruin and rubble that they can climb up. And Virgil turns around with that same sweet look that I first saw at the foot of the mountain. Go back to Canto 1. I dare you to find the moment in which Virgil gives a dolce, a sweet look to the pilgrim. No. The pilgrim says, are you Virgil? And the pilgrim compliments Virgil on lo bello stilo, the beautiful style. Is that dolce look the same as lo bello stilo, the beautiful style? Maybe. When Virgil appears in Canto 1, this is an added detail. Virgil had a sweet, a dolce look on his face. I don't remember it. Virgil seems actually rather austere in Canto 1. Dante is pulling your leg a little bit. Don't let him fool you. He's rewriting the first canto right in front of you, just like he has over and over again so far in Inferno. We found out all kinds of things about full moon. We found out about that he had a cord around his waist that he meant to catch that leopard with. We found out so much in revisionary history of Canto 1 as we have moved through Inferno. And I think Dante, our poet, is winking at us here saying, oh, you know me. 
I'm just a just a poor average poet. And at the same time, I'm going to rewrite my own poem right under your feet to remind you that I am in control of all of this. In fact, the control extends further in the passage. Who are we talking about here? A villanello? Who? Who? What is he? He's a shepherd with sheep, right? Who else is a shepherd with sheep? Oh, you know the answer to this. Jesus, the shepherd of his sheep. Jesus is often compared to a shepherd. And not only Jesus, but there's a long-standing tradition coming out of Judaism that God is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm, what is it? 23? Yeah, we're close. Can't out 24? Maybe. But there's a long tradition of God as a shepherd and Jesus as the shepherd of his people. And you know who else is considered a shepherd in the Middle Ages? Virgil. Virgil is often thought of as a shepherd. Some poets and some thinkers actually even make Virgil a shepherd. Why? Because he wrote these poems, the Georgics, which are very bucolic poems about the rural country life. And there are many representations of Virgil, even with a shepherd's crook in his hand. This Filanello is taking on, this villager, this peasant, is taking on characteristics of Jesus and Virgil. And do you see how the passage is getting weirdly meta-literary and how it's getting difficult and the levels of meaning are proliferating around what we thought was a simple, beautiful, and well-constructed lyric poem about the changing of the seasons and a poor guy who's just thinking, oh, well, winter never end. Do you see how the levels and are happening around us? Is that guy Jesus? Is that guy Virgil? Is that why Virgil turns back with a smile? Is Virgil being compared to Jesus? Is Virgil as a shepherd being linked up to Jesus as a shepherd? Is that why Dante is following in those deer footprints at the end of Canto 23? There are so many questions running around us, and the passage is so complicated that we have to notice one more thing before we get to some possible interpretations. Remember when I told you that there is nothing to steal from a villanello, that, you know, the guy's a poor guy, lives in a hovel. He doesn't even, and it's the part time of year in which even his food stocks are running low. Everything's kind of uh, at, at, at wit's end here, and there's not a lot around. So he can't really be the victim of much theft. Well, somebody else can be the victim of theft. I mean, after all, I told you the first parts of the passage quote the Aeneid and the Georgics, and Ovid's metamorphoses are sitting behind them, there's a literary theft going on here. And while our villager may be so poor there's nothing to pillage, well, you know what you can pillage? You can pillage all kinds of classical texts, and you can pull all kinds of lines out of them about long-haired Apollo and about Aquarius and about hoarfrost from the Georgics. You can pull all that out, and you can have Ovid's notion of the changing seasons sitting behind you. You can pillage a lot from classical texts. You might even be called a literary thief. We're going to have to hold that. Let's talk about what this passage could possibly mean. 
There are three ways that you can kind of think about how this opening to Canto 24 works. And let me tell you these three ways, and I'm not going to necessarily come down on any of them as the right way. I'm just going to tell you that in commentary, there are three long ways that this has been thought of. One is that Virgil is the hoarfrost that melts to let Dante feed his sheep. Let me explain this to you. Virgil has been truncated in his actions. He's been whipped by the demons, by the poet, by all kinds of things. And ultimately, Virgil is like the like the hoarfrost. He's kind of just this thing that has been finally just beaten into submission by his melting. Then Dante as the villanello, Dante as the villager, as the peasant. Dante can now feed me once Virgil's his anger, his irritation is over. Dante can go back to feeding me. This is a common reading of the passage. It goes all the way back to Dante's son, who, by the way, let me just say Pietro de Dante is the first to have noticed the Georgics reference inside this passage. It goes all back a long way to say that basically Virgil's irritation is the hoarfrost that has to melt in order for Dante to be able to feed his sheep. And let me say something else about that while I'm at it, since Dante is so compared to this villanello, this villager, this peasant. I got in a conversation with a dentista, J. Simon Harris, who has been interviewed on this podcast. He was about to come out with his own translation of Inferno, which I am anxiously awaiting. And I got into a conversation with him the other day about Dante's need for Virgil to be corporeal. Remember at the end of Canto 23, Virgil makes footprints. And I said, it's, you know, difficult to know because how this goes, because how can Virgil, a shade, make footprints? And uh, J. Simon Harris pointed out to me that the gluttons are referred to as kind of vain phantoms, vain empty phantoms, that they kind of have an empty about the gluttons up with Chaco, and yet Virgil seems to be making footprints, and yet at the same time, the centaurs pointed out that Dante, the pilgrim, moves the rocks as he walks, which no other soul in hell can do. But how can then Virgil be making footprints? There may be a way, and this is what he and I finally came to in our conversation on Twitter, there may be a way in which Dante needs Virgil to be solid. That even though Dante has expressed a great deal of pique and irritation at Virgil, and he has whipped Virgil quite successfully ever since the soothsayers in the big circle of fraud, still Dante needs Virgil to be, I don't want to say corporeal, but solid more solid than anyone else because it is through Virgil's imagination of the afterlife that Dante comes into his imagination of the underlife. It's Virgil's understanding of what happens when Aeneas goes into the underworld that forms the underpinnings of what Inferno looks like in Dante's comedy. And so Dante needs more heft out of Virgil emotionally metaphysically, and thus Virgil's corporeality is a matter of some discussion inside of Inferno, maybe. And this might be an example of that, that Virgil's peak needs to evaporate in order for Dante to keep taking his sheep, that is, his readers, out to pasture to feed them. An interesting reading of the metaphor, but here's another one. The demons are the hoarfrost. 
that has to melt to let the shepherd, Virgil, lead his sheep, Dante, to pasture again. So the demons are this bit of fake winter that comes along and you think, oh gosh, we're never going to get out of this winter. And that has to melt in order for Virgil to be able to carry on the journey and take his sheep Dante to the pastures that will ultimately create this poem. And perhaps that's a comment, no joke, on the Aeneid as the pasture. That is, having melted the demon's hoarfrost, Dante now moves into this simile, which quotes from the Aeneid and the Georgics and perhaps Ovid, but quotes from the Aeneid. Virgil can lead him back to the pastures of poetry from which the poem gets its impetus, from which the poem gets its very structure, from which the afterlife itself is envisioned. Interesting reading of what's going on here and how it all works. But there's a third way we could look at this, and that is that ultimately, how do I say this, imitative writing has to give way to sun-illumined or inspired writing. The hoarfrost is copying the image of her white sister, so of the snow. So the hoarfrost is trying to trace, to use a writing instrument, a quill, in fact, to write the snow onto the world around it. And in doing so, she is, the hoarfrost, is imitating her whiter sister, the snow. But in the end, that hoarfrost has to go away. And in the end, that imitative writing has to go away in order to find a more sun-illumined, sun cooling his curls in Aquarius, dare we say in a Christian context, inspired kind of writing. It's all well and good to copy, but ultimately, if all you do is copy, (laughs) Virgil, Ovid, (laughs) Lucan, if all you do, Statius, if all you do is copy your readers, your villanello, the peasants who surround you are going to grumble because all you're doing is copying. And I'm going to walk out into the poem and I go, oh, no, not more Virgil. Come on. Not more Ovid. Come on. Give me a break. Give me something else. Ultimately, you're going to have to come into your own imaginative territory, which could then be tied to the rewriting of Canto 1 again that happens in this passage, making Canto 1 suddenly more sunny and also more original as Virgil appears. You may have to find your way out of imitative writing and into a more low, common, and dare I say, original style that allows your reader to see the world in new ways without just thinking, oh God, do we have to have more Virgil being quoted at us? An interesting way to read this opening simile before we get to these next fraudsters and before we get to, yes, it's coming, the great contest with Ovid. Let me just read this passage one more time. It's so complicated that it just bears reading one more time before we finish. In that part of the year when it's in its youth, so much so that the sun cools his curls in Aquarius and the nights are already about half of the days, when Frost copies her image on the earth to look like that of her white sister, although the quill she uses stays sharp only briefly, that's when the villager, whose food stocks are running low, gets out of bed, 
takes a look around and sees the countryside has all whitened. He smacks his thigh in disgust, goes back into his house and complains for a bit like a knave who doesn't know what he should do. Until a short while later, he goes outside again and hope gets put back in his basket because he's seen how quickly the world changes its aspect. He takes his crook and drives his little sheep out to find their pastures. Just so my master made me practically a coward when I saw his forehead so troubled, and just so the wound got a band-aid very fast, because at the moment we got up to the ruined bridge, my guide turned back to me with that same sweet look that I first saw at the foot of the mountain. That was quite an opening to Canto 24, and if you think that was quite an opening, wait till you find out what's ahead of us in Canto 24. To do that, you've got to subscribe to the podcast, Walking with Dante. Please rate it. Please write a comment on any of the platforms you find. If you enjoy this podcast, I would so appreciate it. It is so wonderful when I get into conversations with people on social media and when I see comments because, as I've said to you a million times, it feels like sometimes I'm yelling in a box, and it's nice to that it's not an empty box, that there are those on the walk together and that we're making this journey across Dante together. So subscribe, rate, do all the things you need to do. I'm doing all the things I think I need to do and there's probably more which you can even remind me of on social media. Otherwise, I will see you very soon for more of Canto 24. I'm Mark Scarborough and this is Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.